Well, if we could, with the Lord's help and the Lord's enabling uh, this morning, if we could turn back to that portion of Scripture that we read. The Gospel according to Mark, chapter 14. Mark, chapter 14, and if we read again uh, the words of verse 26 and 27. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will, will be scattered. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. It's now less than 24 hours until Jesus Christ will die upon a Roman cross. The 30 plus years of Jesus' life are soon to come to an end. The three years of Jesus' ministry, which has been full of miracles, healings and uh, profound teaching, it will be brought to its climax and its culmination with his death and resurrection. This is Jesus' last night before his death. And as you can expect, it's going to be one of the most painful nights that Jesus will ever endure. Not only because he will be beaten, flogged, spat upon, mocked and then crucified. But also because he will be forsaken. And Jesus will be forsaken by those closest to him. But if this was your last night. Your last night before your death. You would want those closest to you to be around you. You would want all your family and all your friends to provide comfort and support. Well, I would anyway. But what we see here in the experience of Jesus is what we were just singing in Psalm 69. Reproach hath broke my heart. I'm full of grief. I looked for one to pity me. But none I found. Comforters found I none. In his greatest hour of need, Jesus was forsaken by those closest to him. We know already that Jesus had lived a life of rejection. He came to his own people, the Jews, but they would not receive him. His family, his own brothers and sisters, they rejected him. His synagogue rejected him. His village rejected him. His nation rejected him. And now in this passage, we see that Jesus was rejected and forsaken all the way to the grave. Where even those who were closest to him, those who had followed him for three years, those who had been taught by him, they were going to reject him and forsake him. Jesus had to face death alone. But you know, it's a stark reminder that we all must face death alone. We can't take anyone with us. We can't take our parents or our children or our wife or our husband or our friends or our elder or even the minister. You can't take anyone with you. We have to face the pain and loneliness of death alone. But there was one person who should never have had to face the pain and the loneliness of death alone. And that was Jesus. And yet he willingly entered into the pain and pain of loneliness and the pain of forsakenness and the pains of death and hell itself 
also that we could have the promise and the hope of eternal life. And what Mark wants us to see is that the pain of Jesus' loneliness and forsakenness, it begins here in the Garden of Gethsemane. But that pain, it will reach its climax at Calvary when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know, I find it so appropriate that the forsakenness and the loneliness of the cross should begin on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because the name Gethsemane, it means oil press. On the Mount of Olives, which produced olives, there was a garden called oil press. Oil press. And it's here that the pressing and the crushing of Jesus for our iniquities would begin. It would begin in the garden of forsakenness. And it was the free church minister of the 19th century, Hugh Martin. He said that the darkness of Gethsemane must be regarded as but the shadow of Calvary. For the sorrows of the garden, he says, they arose from the prospect and the foresight of the sorrows of the cross. And so this morning we stand in the darkness of Gethsemane. And we see that it's a painful experience for Jesus. Because in the garden of Gethsemane, Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus makes this painful prediction that all the disciples will forsake him. And being made aware of the enormity of the cross, Jesus comes before his Father and he engages in prayer. And what, it, what kind of prayer is it but a painful prayer? And then lastly, we'll see that uh, the pain of the Garden of, of Gethsemane is brought to its conclusion. With the painful pretense of Judas. In which Judas betrays him with a kiss. And so they're the three headings that I'd like us to use this morning. A painful prediction. A painful prayer. And a painful pretense. A painful prediction. A painful prayer. And a painful pretense. So if we look firstly at a painful prediction. A painful prediction. If you look again at verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you shall deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all sent the same. And this conversation between Jesus and his disciples, it seems to have taken place while they were on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, which would have been a 20-minute walk from the upper room, which was located inside the city of Jerusalem, to the Mount of Olives, which was on the outside of Jerusalem, on the east side of the city. But this conversation between Jesus and his disciples, it only added to the disciples' confusion. Because they've been told many times that Jesus will be delivered into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes to be killed. And then during the Passover meal, as we saw last week, Jesus had informed his disciples that one of them would betray him. And of course, none of them knew who it was going to be apart from Judas. But now after predicting his death many times and predicting his betrayal, Jesus now predicts that 
all the disciples, all his, his students, they will all fall away and deny him before morning. And for the disciples, it doesn't make for good listening. Because they were determined to be faithful to Jesus and stand with him. And there was no way that they were ever going to deny him. And it wasn't just Peter who refused to believe what Jesus was telling him. All the disciples claimed that, well, if Jesus is going to die, they would die with him. But there's one thing they'll never do, and that is deny him. And it was a bold statement. But it was a statement which undermined the authority of Scripture and failed to recognize their own personal weakness. Because in telling the disciples that they would forsake him, Jesus quotes from Zechariah 13 verse 7. And this is what he says. You will all fall away for it is written. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And what's remarkable is that in that prophecy. Zechariah claims that on the day that the shepherd is smitten. There will be a fountain of salvation opened. To provide cleansing from sin and uncleanness. But more than that, in Zechariah 13, Zechariah describes the shepherd as one who stands next to the Lord. The shepherd is in a close relationship with God himself. And yet it will be God's shepherd who will be appointed to protect and care, who has been appointed to protect and care for the sheep. He is the one who's going to be smitten. He is going to be struck down. The shepherd is going to be struck down And the sheep will scatter. And it's a painful prediction. Because Jesus knew that he would be abandoned and forsaken by those closest to him. But what's amazing is that Jesus understood that his forsakenness and his suffering was all part of God's plan and God's purpose. He had already claimed that he was the divine shepherd of God's people. When he said that in John chapter 10. He told everyone, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And Jesus knew what Isaiah had prophesied about him. That all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And yet the Lord will lay upon the shepherd the iniquity of us all. Because as Isaiah tells us, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief So that he will make his soul an offering for sin. And Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that the darkness of Gethsemane. And the pain of forsakenness. Was all part of fulfilling God's plan. And God's purpose. Jesus understood from God's word. That this is the way it's meant to be. And he submitted to God's will. And you know my friend. When I look at Jesus. I see the greatest example of how to deal with our circumstances. Because Jesus understood God's purposes, even in the midst of all the pain. Jesus understood that God had a great plan that would bring about good and it would be for God's glory. Others may have meant evil against him, but all the time Jesus knew that God meant it for good. It was a painful prediction. And that's what the word prediction means. It just means said beforehand. It was said beforehand. And Jesus knew that God had told him beforehand 
all that would take place and all that would happen to him. He had told him in his word. But what made the pain and the prediction bearable was that God was in it. God was in it. And my friend, God has told us in his word already that this life will not be easy. He has predicted pain. He's told us that this life will be full of pain, full of sorrow, full of illness, full of trials, full of loneliness. God has told us that it is through much tribulation we will enter the kingdom of heaven. But God has also told us where we can go with it all. And that is to this Jesus. We are able to go to Jesus with it because he was made to understand so that he could sympathize with all our weaknesses. And when I look at Jesus, we're told in the Bible, he is our great high priest. And yet he was made like us, made like all of us, touched with a feeling of our infirmities. And he was made to experience trials and all the temptations that we go through. He was able and made to bear our griefs and to carry our sorrows. It's no wonder that the hymn writer says, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And he says, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. My friend, Jesus has given to us a great example to follow. And God has told us in his word that there will be many pains and many sorrows in this life. But he's also told us to, where to go with them. He's told us to go to Jesus with them. And yet, all too often, we follow the example of the disciples rather than the example of Jesus. Because Despite knowing what was going to come and being told from scripture that they would fall away. The disciples refused to listen. They denied the truth. They undermined the authority of scripture. They claimed that they knew better than Jesus. And that they knew themselves better than Jesus. And their situation better than Jesus. And they asserted that, well, it will never happen to them. And it wasn't just Peter who said it. All the disciples denied Jesus' statement. They denied the truth. And the reason for this was because they didn't like being told that they were weak and vulnerable. They didn't like being told that they're not in control of their own life. They didn't like being told that uh, they will let Jesus down. They didn't like being told that they need to depend completely upon someone else other than themselves. But who does? Who likes being told to depend upon someone else? Because like the disciples, we're all very good at hiding our weaknesses. We're all very good at covering up our insufficiencies. We're all very good at putting on the front and presenting to people that we are strong and that everything is fine and that we have it all together. And we're all very good at denying the reality. The reality that none of us have it all together. Because my friend, we are broken people living broken lives in a broken world. And a world that is full of heartache. 
But it's only when we humble ourselves and see ourselves for what we really are that we'll follow the example of Jesus. And we'll confess that I am weak. We'll confess I am vulnerable. I'm full of flaws. I'm full of failures. But more than that, when we see who we are, we will confess that without Jesus, we can do nothing. Without him, we can do nothing. And that's what's so wonderful about this painful prediction. Because here is Jesus, and despite all that's ahead of him, he gives to the disciples a promise. Despite all that is before him in the cross and Gethsemane, Jesus gives to the disciples a promise. After I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. After I'm raised, I will go before you. Jesus gives to the disciples a wonderful promise that he'll go before them and he will be with them. And that promise, it was actually affirmed by the angel at the tomb. When Jesus had risen, the angel was there and said, Jesus is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. He predicted. And that's the promise we have in this painful world. We have the promise that Jesus will be with us and Jesus will go before us. Because he says to us on the pages of scripture, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. The last thing he said to his disciples, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. What a promise. A promise in the midst of a painful prediction. But secondly, we see a painful prayer. A painful prayer. If you look at verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And when we read these words, we begin to realize that Gethsemane is living up to its name. Because it's here that the pressing and the crushing weight of Calvary is made known to Jesus. But what we see first of all is that Jesus separates himself from the 12 disciples by telling them to sit and wait here while I go and pray. But from out of of the 12 disciples, Jesus takes what uh, we often refer to as the inner three, Peter, James and John. And this wasn't the first time that Jesus sought the company of the inner three. When he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, Jesus chose the same three to come and uh, witness her resurrection. When Jesus was transfigured on the top of, of that mountain, it was Peter, James, and John who witnessed that spectacle. And now, as he faces the horrors of Calvary, Jesus again requests the company of Peter, James, and John. And we may ask, well, why those three? Why not the other, other disciples that are left behind? Well, I, I believe that it was because they were being prepared for a specific work. Because after the death and resurrection of Jesus, 
Peter, James and John, they were going to be the foundation stones of the New Testament church. They were going to be the vehicle by which the gospel would spread. Peter would be used on the day of Pentecost in the conversion of thousands. James was going to be one of the first martyrs in the early church. And John was going to be this great influence through his writing the gospel and all his letters. But for these three men in particular, they would experience intense suffering and death. Peter was crucified upside down. James was beheaded. And John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. And so even at this point in his ministry, Jesus is still teaching his disciples and preparing them for the work of the ministry. But you know, it wasn't just Peter, James and John who needed Jesus. Jesus also needed Peter, James and John. Jesus needed his closest friends in his greatest hour of need to pray with him and to pray for him. And with this, we ought to see the humanity of Jesus. That he wasn't some superman. He was the God-man. He was 100% God and 100% human. But as a human, he needed the help and support and friendship of his fellow man. He needed Peter, James and John to pray with him and to pray for him. And that's what we all need. Especially in times of crisis. We need friends and we need people to pray with us and to pray for us. We need friends in the ministry. We need friends in the workplace. We need friends as as parents. We need friends as those who are retired. Because the greatest privilege about having friends is that you can pray for them and you can pray with them. And when we encounter experiences that we never planned or never saw coming into our life and we don't know how to deal with ourselves, well, the best thing to do is to bring it before the Lord in prayer and ask others to pray for us and to pray with us. We can ask those around us or those closest to us to pray. And you know, as a minister, it's one of the greatest privileges, the greatest privileges To be able to go into people's homes and to pray with them, to pray for them as a family in whatever situation they find themselves in. Because prayer is a gift from God. And prayer is an awesome privilege in which we can come before God with all our burdens and cast them upon him. Because that's the promise of the Bible. Cast all your cares upon the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. My friend, it's because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. That we are able to come to God's throne of grace. And we're able to come, as the Bible says, boldly. Not only to obtain mercy, but also to find there grace to help in time of need. Grace to help in time of need. And that's what Jesus was seeking. He was seeking the support of his friends and grace to help in time of need. And we need to follow the example of Jesus rather than the example of the disciples who were too proud to show any sign of weakness or vulnerability. We need to be people who pray with others, 
and to pray for others. We need, and we need people to pray with us and to pray for us. But for Jesus, his experience of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane was going to be a painful experience. Because the Garden of Gethsemane would be the Garden of Forsakenness. As even his closest friends would forsake him and let him down. Three times Jesus would go and pray. And three times he would come back to find Peter, James and John fast asleep. And that was because it was between, it's now between two and four in the morning. And so it's no wonder they were tired. But Jesus says about them that they had succumbed to the temptation to sleep. Their spirit was willing. Their flesh was weak. And it's so true. You'll never feel tiredness until you start praying. You'll never know distraction until you start praying. You'll never think about half the things that you need to do in one day until you start praying. But the command, as Jesus said to the disciples, was watch and pray. Watch and pray. Because the last thing the devil wants is for us to pray. To pray for other people. To pray for your home, your family. And yet Jesus sees the disciples failing in their responsibility by abandoning and forsaking Jesus. And it's a reminder to us that it is good to pray with one another and for one another. But we can't just rely upon other people's prayers. We need to pray ourselves. We need to pray for ourselves. Here's a question. Do you ever pray for yourself? Do you pray at all? Do you pray at all? But when Jesus prayed, it was a painful prayer. And that's how it's described for us. Because we're told that Jesus was troubled and distressed. Which are... They're words that are only used elsewhere in Mark's gospel to describe the power and the darkness of the demons that overshadowed Legion. Legion was possessed by many demons. And he was troubled and distressed by the demons who wanted to kill him. Which makes sense of what Jesus said. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. It seems that the soul of Jesus is now coming face to face with the forces of hell and the power of darkness. To the point that he confesses to the disciples that his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. And it's burdened with grief to the point of death. And as one commentator put it, nothing in all the Bible compares to Jesus' anguish of, and agony in Gethsemane. Nothing in all the Bible compares to it. But what was it that caused Jesus to cower and be overwhelmed at the prospect of his own death? What was it that caused Jesus to collapse on the earth in prayer, asking that Calvary might be avoided? Because Jesus, he had spoken about his death on many, many occasions. And he'd traveled purposely towards Jerusalem to meet his death. But what was it that caused Jesus to pray? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, the answer must be something more than simply his death. I believe that what Jesus had said back in chapter 10. That's the key chapter of Mark's gospel. 
Chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what we see is that Gethsemane was the first step. The first step in that ransom being paid as Jesus submits to the will of his Father. Because in his submission to the Father's will, Jesus was guaranteeing that the ransom would be paid in full at Calvary. And his prayer, when Jesus says, Abba, Father, it shows intimacy and boldness that Jesus had with his own Father as his Son. A Son who had never experienced the wrath of his Father. He was the beloved Son. He enjoyed perfect love. Perfect fellowship, perfect harmony, perfect union with his and communion with his father. And yet, the humility of Jesus and the willingness of Jesus to accept the father's will and to trust that the father knows what he's doing. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And this is the burden. This is what made his soul exceedingly sorrowful. This is what caused him such agony and distress of soul. The burden of fulfilling the Father's will. The burden of becoming the ransom for many. The burden of drinking the cup of the Father's wrath. And it was Hugh Martin again in his his book, The Shadow of Calvary. He says, in Jesus' consent to receive the cup of his Father's wrath... He was consenting to be made sin for us. He was consenting to be numbered with the transgressors. And he was consenting to have the iniquities of his people laid upon him. This, says Hugh Martin, this is what Gethsemane transacted between the Father and the Son. Jesus was guaranteeing that the ransom would be paid in full at Calvary. And you know, my friend, it's one thing. To stand before a holy God in the day of judgment and be condemned for your own sin. But it's quite another thing altogether to willingly and humbly stand before a holy God as one who knew no sin and yet became sin for us and be judged and condemned. Condemned so that we might be made righteous. It's one thing, my friend, to experience the wrath of God and enter into hell knowing that your own sin brought you there. But it's quite another thing altogether to willingly and humbly endure God's wrath and hell so that we could be forgiven. My friend, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus guaranteed Calvary's great transaction that Jesus would take our sin And we would receive his righteousness. And he guaranteed it with his word. Not my will. But your will be done. He sealed it with his oath. And you know all I hear echoing out of Gethsemane. Are those words we were singing in Psalm 40. The Psalm of Gethsemane. The Psalm uh, when we were hearing Jesus Saying to his father, to do thy will, I take delight. O thou, my God, that art, yea, that most holy law of thine, I have 
within my heart. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews also confirmed. That it was the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising its shame. And the joy which Jesus had was knowing that his death was not in vain. Because his death guaranteed that our sins would be forgiven and that we could enjoy peace with God. It was a painful prayer, but out of it came a perfect promise. Perfect promise. The promise that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And my friend, that whosoever, it includes everyone and it excludes no one. It includes you. It includes you. Whosoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so we've seen a painful prediction, a painful prayer. But lastly and briefly, we see a painful pretense. A painful pretense. Look at verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. And so having guaranteed to his father that the ransom would be paid in full, the road to Calvary begins. In his, this final event in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is abandoned and forsaken by one of his own disciples. And Mark presses that point because he tells us again that the one who came to betray Jesus, he says Judas was one of the twelve. Judas came, one of the twelve. But what's clear is that at the end of his ministry, no one had understood who Jesus is and why Jesus had come. The night before he's going to die, they still can't understand it. None of the disciples had understood what Jesus was about. Judas hadn't understood what Jesus was about because he takes with him this large crowd of men with swords and, swords and clubs in order to arrest him. And even all the religious leaders of the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders who had sent this mob to get Jesus, they still didn't understand what Jesus was all about. Because they sent the men with Jesus, Judas, thinking that Jesus would try and escape or put up a fight. And yet Jesus reminds every one of them there. He reminds them that he had been with them on many occasions. I was with you in the temple. Teaching in the temple. And yet you didn't seize me. And the reason for this wasn't because he was too strong for them. Or that he tried to escape. Or that they weren't ready yet. The reason it didn't happen. Was simply because, as he says himself. His hour had not yet come. Which means that Jesus had affirmed. He, he affirms it to the disciples. Which he had just said a few moments earlier. He had a few, in verse 41, they came the third time and said to him, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Jesus knew that his hour had come and that 
in order for Calvary's great transaction to be completed, in order for the ransom to be paid, the scriptures must be fulfilled. The scriptures must be fulfilled. And they are the scriptures of Zechariah 13, which claimed the shepherd must be struck and the sheep will scatter. The scriptures of Psalm 41, which affirmed that Judas, my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he has lifted his heel against me. The scriptures of Psalm 69, which we were singing, and Jesus confesses, reproach hath broke my heart. I'm full of grief. I looked for one to pity me, but none I found. Comforters found I none. The scriptures were fulfilled in Psalm 22, which prophesied that Jesus would save his enemies. They pierced my hands and feet. The scriptures of Isaiah 53, which speaks so vividly of the suffering servant who would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. My friend, this is the wonder of wonders that Jesus was obedient to the will of his Father all so that the scriptures could be fulfilled. All so that the scriptures could be fulfilled. Obedient unto death. But as you know the climax in the garden of forsakenness. It came with a kiss. In order to identify Jesus to the men who would arrest him. Judas had agreed this signal. The signal was a kiss. And it was a painful kiss filled with venom and hatred. And yet it was delivered in the pretense of love and honour. It was a painful pretense. Because in the act of kissing Jesus on the cheeks, Judas was demonstrating the display of honour and reverence. The reverence and honour that was due to a rabbi from, the, from a disciple. And in fact, Judas addresses Jesus as rabbi. He, he comes to Jesus and he says, rabbi, rabbi. And he kisses him. Judas delivered his kiss in the pretense of love, honour and reverence. But the truth was, Judas's heart was far from Jesus. He didn't know Jesus. He didn't know why Jesus had come. And he didn't want to know Jesus. And you know, I worry that those of you who are not committed Christians, you are more like Judas than you think. Because you come to church and you come before Jesus each Lord's Day morning and you give to Jesus the position of honour and reverence before all the onlooking disciples. And you even kiss Jesus. But it's a painful pretense. Because you only kiss Jesus in the pretense of your love, honour and reverence for him. Dare I say it's not real. It's not genuine. It's not sincere. Because the truth is, your heart is far from Jesus. You don't know Jesus you don't know why Jesus came. And sometimes I wonder if you want to know Jesus at all. In a moment we're going to sing in Psalm 2. 
A psalm which is all about Jesus as the King of Kings. God's beloved Son. But at the end of Psalm 2, there is the exhortation to kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Which means that we are to kiss the Son by humbling ourselves before King Jesus. Giving to Him love, honour and respect. The love, honour and respect He deserves. And we're to do it with a genuine and a sincere heart. We are to do it with full commitment. A heart that wants to have Jesus as our Lord and as our King. But the warning which is issued in Psalm 2. Along with the command to kiss the Son. It's kiss the Son. Lest in his ire, his anger, you perish from the way. So the choice is, kiss the sun, lest you perish. Make sure that you come to this Jesus. You give to him the honour, the love and respect he deserves. And kiss him. Bow down before him. And ask him to be your Lord. And to be your saviour. Lest you perish. From the way. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Let us pray. O Lord our gracious God. We, we give thanks to thee. For the shadow of Calvary. We thank thee O Lord. For the reminder that. Even in the garden of Gethsemane. Our Saviour was forsaken, but we bless Thee that through all that He went through, that we are able to enjoy the benefits and the blessings of eternal life. And enable us, Lord, we pray, to humble ourselves before Thee, that we might stop in our tracks, that we might stop and bow before Thee and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Oh, bless us, we pray Thee. Bless Thy word to our souls. We pray that it would find lodgment in our heart, that it would bring forth much fruit. Do us good and we pray. Bless this day to us, the Lord's day. Help us to glorify thee in it and to enjoy thee forever. Go before us and we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. We'll conclude in that psalm in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 in the Scottish Psalter, page 201. Singing from verse 7 down to the verse Mark 12, the end of the psalm. The sure decree I will declare, the Lord hath sent to me. Thou art mine only son this day, I have begotten thee. Ask of me and for heritage, the heathen I'll make thine. And for possession I to thee will give earth's utmost line. Down to the end of the psalm. Kiss ye the son, lest in his ire you perish from the way. If once his wrath begin to burn, blessed all that on him stay. These verses to God's praise.
Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore. Amen.